All right. Well, hello, everybody. Today we begin a new sermon series titled Living in the Light. We will be studying one of the Apostle John's letters. Now, John, the dearly loved disciple of Jesus, wrote a number of our New Testament books. He wrote the Gospel of John, Book of Revelation, and uh, three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So today we're going to be studying, begin studying 1 John. Now, John was an old man when he wrote 1 John. It's roughly 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and all the other disciples had died, but God wasn't done with John yet. There was a network of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day eastern Turkey, and John shepherded them well. He lived there in their community. But this letter wasn't just for them back then. It's also for us here today. See, just as the hope and joy of the gospel, that it had come to that first generation of disciples, so too it has come to us as well. And just as those ancient churches in those difficult times needed reminding of how good and glorious life in Christ is and how ultimate joy in life ultimately is connected with the word of life, Jesus Christ. So we need reminding of this too. This sermon is titled, Fullness of Joy. You need that, don't you? Let's begin. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that this word has been kept and treasured and, and, and been brought to us this morning. In it, we see that you are overflowing with joy to your creatures, we who are made in your image to reflect your glory. Oh, how we need fullness of joy in our lives. We're thankful that in Christ, this truth is come to us, and we embrace it with joy. Holy Spirit, enliven our minds and our hearts to treasure what we are studying here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you haven't figured it out, today we're going to look at joy, our longing for joy, the elusiveness of joy, and ultimately where our joy must be found. Now, let's begin by drawing a distinction between happiness and joy. Though the words have some overlap, we often confuse the two. Happiness is a gladness that we find in the circumstances of our lives. Happiness is a contentment in the present situation. It is a delight in the day or in a season of life we find ourselves in. Happiness is good. 
But the problem with happiness is that it is an emotion that is easily interrupted by our circumstances. You know this all too well, do you not? Have you ever made travel plans and showed up at the airport with your bags packed only to find out that your flight, the last flight of the day, has been canceled? Or consider the many students who were so looking forward to their last semester of high school or college and um, only to have it canceled by the coronavirus. Or consider a college freshman who was a part of our congregation, who was enjoying life on his college campus this fall until one of his friends tested positive for COVID-19, and though he himself wasn't positive, um, the school is now forcing him uh, to stay all alone under quarantine in a rented hotel room for 14 days, and he cannot leave. One minute he is happy on campus, and the next minute, everything is on lockdown, including his happiness. Happiness can be oh so fleeting, can't it? Now, a lot of people think they have joy, because that what, but what they really have is a, is a plan for future happiness that gives them hope in the present. You, you understand this, right? Like, say you lose your job or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you tell yourself, don't worry, I'll have everything under control in a month or two. But for happiness to come, hope for happiness to come is not the same thing as joy in the present. Happiness is dictated by our circumstances, but true joy transcends our circumstances. And it's able to do so because true joy comes from above. Listen, this is critically important. If you miss what John is telling us here this morning, you will live the rest of your life always hungering for happiness, but never, ever tasting fullness of joy. There's much on the line. In the last sentence of verse 4 in our passage, we read that John's purpose of this letter is so that our joy may be complete. Now, the Greek word translated complete here is, is one that conveys a sense of filling all the way to the top, like that, that cup of water that you filled up, or the milk that just overflows. It's like, oh my gosh. John is writing and telling us certain things so that our joy may be full. And what we need to see is that fullness of joy is not simply from favorable circumstances, nor is fullness of joy something that you already have inside you. You just need to learn how to tap into it. No, fullness of joy comes not from a plan, but from a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is not about becoming religious. We all know plenty of religious people who lack joy. Christianity is about a relationship with the ultimate source of joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, here's the deal. We must anchor our lives to Christ so that he may give us fullness of joy, no matter our circumstances. We're going to divide our time into two areas this morning. First, we're going to look at the surety of joy and then the source of joy. First, the surety of joy. Now, surety is a word. You maybe you already know what it means, but if not, it's a good one to have in your vocabulary. Uh, surety is often used in, in legal manners as, as kind of like a guarantee, like a bond or an escrow account that you set up in order to satisfy a lender or something. But a surety can also be a person. Like if you're a recent college graduate and your credit isn't all that good and you go to the car dealer to try to get a loan, well, the lender is probably going to ask for a surety, and that surety will be mom or dad, and they will have to co-sign on the loan. Your parents are the surety 
who guarantee the loan for the lender. John is telling us that God has given us, he sent us a surety for our joy. John first calls this surety what? In verse 1, he calls it the word of life. And then verse 2, he calls it the eternal life. And later in verse 3, he gives us the identity. It's the Son, Jesus Christ. The point that John is trying to make for us is that this word of life, this eternal life, this Son of God, Jesus Christ, has something to do with fullness of joy that we read of in verse 4. John is trying to demonstrate the surety of our joy. John is testifying that this Jesus truly existed. We touched him. And that Jesus wasn't just a good man or a moral teacher. No, he was God in the flesh who came to die on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave, and he's now ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that eternal life and the joy that it brings is only found in him by faith. Now, many people today mock this Christian gospel God taking on flesh, that's impossible, it's preposterous. Or they'll say, you know, I don't, I don't need saving. Well, that was an issue in John day, John's day too. Towards the end of John's life, there was a philosophy called Gnosticism that was beginning to rise. It didn't really reach its full peak until uh, later in the second century. But Gnostics believed that they had a secret knowledge. That's what the Greek word means. It means knowledge, to know. They had this secret knowledge that, that could be attained, and, and by having this knowledge, it would deliver one's soul into salvation. Just the soul, though. See, they also, like the Greeks, they saw the material world as corrupt and evil, and, and only the spiritual world was good. And so for the Gnostics and, of course, the Greco-Romans, God would never take on human form. And so what we see here is that this Gnosticism is starting to influence the church, certainly in Asia Minor. They have come in and they're saying that, you know, this Jesus, he was just an ordinary man who achieved salvation for himself, and he's showing you the things you need to know in order to go save yourself or to have a better life. Now, many people today believe that Jesus was just merely a man. John here flat out denies it in the very first verse of this letter. How does John describe Jesus in verse 1? He refers to him as that which was from the beginning, that is, before time. Before the world was created, Jesus, the Son of God, existed. And how is that possible? Well, he is fully God. Earlier, Hannah Faye read the opening words from John's Gospel. This is where this same John that we we're reading of this morning uh, writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were created by him. Now the word, of course, is Jesus. And then he writes some words that were scandalous to the Gnostics and the Greco-Romans. And he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of life, eternal God himself, became a fleshed-out human being walking on this broken world. God in the flesh which is why John presses upon them that Jesus is the surety of joy. John is guaranteeing his readers that, that Jesus wasn't a ghost, like some of the Gnostics were beginning to insist. John writes in verse 1 and 2, he says, No, that which was from beginning, God himself, we have heard him in the flesh. We have seen him with our own eyes. We've even touched him with our own hands. 
He has manifested himself. I guarantee it. And of course, John walked with him for three years. He knew him intimately. John is pleading with this church and with us to trust him, that he was there. John says that this word of life, eternal life himself, the divine son of God, he was made manifest. We, we touched him. The surety for fullness of joy is real. And so here's what we need to wrestle with this morning. John is not just saying like life from heaven came, like a living being came. Um, but life itself, like life with a capital L, the author of life, the creator of all things, came to earth. That's an amazing statement. In John's gospel, he writes this, in him, that's Jesus, in him was life. And of course, Jesus says to the woman, the, the thirsty Samaritan woman at the well, if you but only know who was asking you for water, you would ask him for water, and he would give you water that wells up to eternal life, that always satisfies. Listen, and don't let this truth escape you. John is saying that the one who created all things and is therefore responsible for the existence of the universe and all life, including you and me, became a human being. Jesus, the word of life, the eternal life, God's son, came to earth. And listen, here's, here's where I'm getting at. Somehow, our joy, if we are ever to experience it, this is what John is saying, if we're ever to experience joy, somehow it's attached to this fact. Jesus is to be the surety of our joy. Now, a couple questions to challenge us this morning. Will you trust John? Will you trust him as your eyewitness? You should. He was there. He's telling you the truth. And second, if you trust John's witness, will you receive then what he proclaims? Will you turn to Christ, the word of life, and experience his life-giving presence in your life? Will you allow yourself to reach the proper conclusion, which is, if I'm ever to experience fullness in life, I must turn from all other false paths of happiness and turn to Christ, the only one, who gives fullness of joy in life. That is the surety of our joy, now for the source of our joy. Have you ever driven a Tesla? I mean, they're like amazing cars. They like blow my mind. When you get in, when you're like, okay, what do I do? This is insane. All right, I kind of like it. This is fun. Now, what am I doing? Drive, and it drives, right? Uh, lots of technology, uh, and they run on batteries, right? There's, there's no gas, and... and and, you know, one of the issues is there's not a whole lot of charging stations, you know, out there just yet. But no worries. There's an onboard computer, and you just tell it where you want to go, and all along the way, it'll source for you all the charging stations. You just get in, and you go. In a similar way, John plots our source of joy. Remember, John is really keen on Christians experiencing joy. Remember verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy, your joy, may be complete. And ultimately, the source of our joy, if, it's to, if, it, if, our, if this joy that we have is to transcend all of our hurts, all of our setbacks, all of our disappointments and sorrows, it must be a transcendent joy. And so John points us to the source of joy that the gospel opens up for you. And you'll notice that, that, that John doesn't say that the source of joy is, a, is like a program, like a TED Talk or a master's class online. 
He's not saying put these principles into place in your life and chances are you'll be happy more often than not now. Joy is not found in rules for living or in some inner resolve he's just got to muster up. I'm going to be more joyful. Joy is not found in rules or resolve, but in a relationship. And the relationship that John directs us to is what he calls a fellowship. Jesus came to invite you into a fellowship. Fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and a fellowship with other believers. We see that in verse 3. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and of course the Holy Spirit is part of this as it brings this about. Now, try to wrap your head around this. Maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't though. God is a fellowship of infinite joy. For all eternity, God has existed joyfully as a unity of diversity. Unity, God is one. There is but one God. Diversity, God is triune. He is a trinity there. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't ask me to try to explain it. It's just true. If, if there's things about God that, that don't blow your mind, then, then he's not a very worthy God. And trust me, he's a worthy God. He is triune. And know this too. God is not up in heaven bored out of, uh, out of his gourd. God is not anxious about tomorrow, nor is he frustrated. Nor is God's happiness contingent upon anything outside of his control. God has never had a bad day. Do you get that? God lacks no good thing, nothing. He doesn't need us to make him happy. He overflows with joy. That's the point of that cup of water overflowing. The joy of heaven is meant to overflow to earth into our lives. The, the heavenly fellowship of the Trinity, understand this, the, the Trinity, this fellowship that is in heaven for all eternity, is in perfect peace and love and happiness and joy, and nothing can interrupt that. Check out these amazing words of King David, he, he pondered this a lot. And here's what he wrote in Psalm 16. He writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you want that to be true? It is true. So wrap your head around this truth. God is splendidly happy. Happy, happy, happy. God overflows with joy. Joy upon joy upon joy. And it never ends. Never needs to be added to. Never runs out. Doesn't need a charging station. Divine joy in the fellowship of heaven cannot be interrupted by the mockings of atheists on earth or by your failures or my failures. Divine joy cannot be interrupted, but it can be laid aside. See, that is what Jesus did for, for me and for you. He left heaven. He left glory. He left the overflow for you and for me. He, he left heaven and entered our sin-stained, rebellious world. 
The world in which he created, which is turned from him, he entered in love, God in human flesh, rejected by the very people he created. And the very people he loved tried to kill him, and they did. Now, the cross wasn't an accident. Jesus willingly went to the cross. As Listen, as it, it is God's remedy for our joy problem. How so? Well, think about this. Try to follow the logic here. If God overflows with joy, like we've been saying, and yet, think about it, our lives lack joy, then we must in some way be cut off from the source of joy. And we are. We are separated from the fellowship of the Trinity in all its joy. We're separated by our sin. Imagine if the joyful, delightful fellowship in the Trinity is like a pristine swimming pool, pure, clean water, perfect temperature, where swimming just fills you with delight. And along comes a filthy, muddy person. That person's filth prevents them from entering the joy of the clear water. He needs what? He needs a cleansing. And that is what the cross does for us. It cleanses us so that we may enter into the waters of the fellowship of the joy-filled trinity. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus, Jesus exited, he exited the, the rapturous joy of heaven so that sinners like you and me may be cleansed and therefore able to enter into the fellowship of heaven, where heaven's joys are now ours. Now check this out also. What was it that gave Jesus the power to endure this cross and all of its shame? Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. It's another book in the Bible. Uh, Here's what we read. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was joy that was set before Jesus, this divine, overflowing, beautiful joy that is filling heaven. It it was joy that filled his head and his heart during the most horrific injustice ever committed on earth. Now, listen, if Jesus can experience joy even while being arrested on trumped-up charges, while being mocked and beaten by the very people he came to save, and even as he hangs on the cross in agony, bearing the sins of the world, if Jesus can experience joy despite all that, I want that joy. And that joy, that joy that triumphs over the worst of circumstances, Access to that joy is ours by virtue of our faith in Christ. You know, as a pastor, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with Christians that, that, who say things like this. This cancer is horrific, yet there is a joy in me that only makes sense because of the cross. Or, or, or my kids have strayed from the faith. And yet, I have come to trust God in his timing. I am able to rejoice, even though my heart is heavy. This is what the Apostle Paul describes in another book, where he describes this peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That is, it makes no earthly sense, but there it is. Peace, 
contentment, yes, even joy in the worst of circumstances. And, and how is this peace despite our hardship possible? Because it comes not from within us. It is a gift from heaven to God's people. It is an overflow of the fellowship of God into your life. Because your life is now anchored on Christ. See, he is the vine and you're the branch. And as you abide in him and live with him and for him, his life becomes yours. And yes, even as you experience hardship and trials and suffering and loss for his sake, that same joy that was set before him on his way to the cross is now set before you too. So Jesus gives us access into the fullness of joy that the Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity. It's a transcendent joy. It depends not upon you to muster it up. All we do is lay hold of it by faith. It's a promise from God to his people. So let me ask you are, you, are you lonely? Know this. Christ was cut off from his Father while he hung on the cross for our sins. On the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced that immense degree of loneliness so that we may never be forsaken. And so are you lonely? Then draw near to Christ. Kindle a relationship with the only one who can give you ultimate joy. Let him be to you as a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Are you anxious? Know this, that the cross turns us into children of God, dearly loved by our heavenly Father, and he will provide our daily bread, close to where? A roof over our heads. We have a good, good, good Father who cares for us. And Jesus is our surety of that. Is your body failing you? I know what would make you happy. After years of injuries, my body aches too. So I know what would make me happy. A new body, or at least a couple new knees, new back, new neck, new hand. But I also know that God does not promise us happy circumstances, including pain-free bodies, but he does promise us joy in the midst of our pain. Sometimes we Christians are looking for the wrong thing. So if your body is failing, you know that ultimately the cross could not hold Jesus. He is risen, which means all who trust in him will be risen too. There is a day coming when all who have died in Christ who are resting in his presence, will be raised in imperishable bodies and will be given a new heaven, a new earth, and Christ will dwell with us. So the frailties of this life will be swallowed up in the victory to come. My friends, though, the cross says, God feels your frailty and your pain, and he's done something about it. So may this future grace, which Jesus has secured for us, be the source of joy in the present. Let me conclude with one last point. There's actually two fellowships in this passage. Did you pick up on that? John wrote, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, I probably get accused of talking a lot about the church, the body of Christ. I mean, I love the body of Christ. So does Jesus 
So I'm all about the church and, um, and us living out life together. And the church is the body of Christ. And he is our head. If you want to touch Christ on earth, be a part of his church. Be a part of his fellowship on earth. He's there in our midst. But know this also. God has brought you not just into the divine fellowship of heaven. He has brought you into his divine fellowship here on earth. The church is messed up and messy and difficult as we are at times. Listen, it is God's plan that heavenly joy would come to us as we gather here in fellowship on earth. This is one reason why I'm so thankful. Like We've got these grace groups, discipleship groups starting up, and we began them. We launched them last week. Do you know that close to 60% of our regular adults who call Grace Church home are taking part in these intimate, um, life-changing fellowship, discipleship groups? And it's already producing joy. For example, this past week, um, I had a conversation with a man. This, this man I've been meeting with and talking with for over two months about whether he would be a part of the grace group. Like This is like a super, super busy person. Let's just put it out there like it's hardly any time um, outside of work. And, but we both prayed um, for discernment. And in the end, he joined a grace group. And I called him up uh, after his grace group and just to see how it went you should have heard the joy in his voice. He was talking about this and talking about that. He's like, Mark, I just can't believe it. This is just so wonderful. His joy was overflowing. And he attributed it to being a part of the fellowship. And he just kept going on and on. I had to interrupt the guy. And I said, you know what? Your joy is giving me joy. <laughs> My friends, it's as simple as that. God is, God is a joyful God. Do you believe that? He's joyful. And, and, and our, our salvation is meant to bring us into fellowship with him and fellowship with other disciples. And in these bonds of peace, true joy comes to us. So Jesus is our surety of our joy. Jesus is the source of our joy. And so no matter our circumstances, we must anchor our lives to Christ, that he may give us fullness of joy. So where are you this morning? Do you realize that ultimate joy must come from above? From fellowship with the fullness of joy in heaven? From a relationship with Christ? If so, well, turn now, trust in him, give your life to Christ. For those here who have given your lives to Christ, do you understand how much your Heavenly Father desires your joy? I'm going to butcher his name because it's French, and I don't speak French. I hardly speak Spanish. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Oh, pretty good. Okay. Here's what he said. He said, Joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Walter Knight, and I think I got his name right, said, listen, joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence. Christ Church, may we be such people. May we seek the joy giver who is above. 
May we bid his presence into the castles of our hearts, and may his joy reach its fullness in us. Let's pray. It's true, you are happy, (laughs) and your joy overflows. Nothing can contain it. The skies proclaim your glory and your goodness, your might and your joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, may we, your people, understand this truth. May we also know that it is for us. You desire our joy, our joy to be found in you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would press more and more of these truths into our lives, that we would walk by faith in this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.